Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sensational, the special educational needs podcast brought to you by Withersack Group. Our podcast is all about celebrating neurodiversity, providing parents and carers with the knowledge you need to support and empower your child. My name is Molly, I'm the Marketing and Events Officer for the group and I'm really pleased to be bringing you this episode titled Autism, What Every Parent Needs to Know. This episode is specifically designed for parents and carers who are right at the beginning of their journey Perhaps you're just discovering that your child is showing traits of autism or you're even considering applying for an assessment to diagnosis. We're going to be discussing what every parent needs to know, including how to get an assessment, myths and misrepresentations, and some top tips and strategies on how to support your child at home. So I'm delighted to be joined by our expert speaker today, who is Anne-Marie Harrison, the Education Director of Ideas of Fresh Education. We've worked with Anne-Marie for over five years now and the feedback from her sessions has always been so great and positive. So we've got lots to get through today. So without further ado, let's start with our first question, Anne-Marie. What is autism? Hi, hi. Thanks for inviting me and I'm delighted to be um, working along with you again. And it's such a a big question with not a little answer. Um, And I think when I'm doing um, training and working with families, it's really nice and helpful to kind of conjure up in our mind the picture of cogs. And I I have eight beautiful coloured cogs that I refer to when I'm thinking about what is autism? Because if we look on the internet, then we will get phrases of lifelong neurodevelopmental difference, which of course it is. But for us on our starting point of a journey, what does that really mean? And what it means in essence is that actually autism is about the way that an individual communicates and interacts. It's about how they process and understand both the social but also the physical um, environment as well. And I think because there's no blood tests or scans like the wonderful QB test that's evolved for ADHD screening, autism is still considered relatively difficult to diagnose. And it's such a vast spectrum that some individuals go for many years without even realizing that they are indeed autistic. And, you know, some people kind of very aware very early on and so an assessment of communication of social interaction of those repetitive and restrictive behaviors and the way that our sensory system works those are still how we um, sort of look at uh, that whole diagnostic and determine a diagnosis so In a nutshell, what is autism? It's the difference, it's the way in which our children um, are evolving and understanding the world in which they live, the way in which they're interacting with that world, and the fact that that communication, that social interaction, and the behaviours that we see and the sensory Um, responses that we see are likely to be different to that of their peers. That's brilliant, thank you. Um, We often hear autism being described as having a superpower. Can you tell us some of the most common strengths that are associated with the condition? Yeah, I think think media kind of take things uh, to the next level sometimes. And it's really important that we keep in touch with reality and that we know that actually all humans have strengths and individuals. And that for many of our autistic 
um, young children, their autistic brains, their abilities in their autistic brains are often commented on as noticing detail of that ability to do that, you know, that like prolonged focus on things, that lovely visual memory that they have. Often people will say that our children are incredibly creative and honest and non-judgmental and scientific and factual and all of these things kind of get um, discussed and, and put out there on the arena. But I think, and that's probably explains why we do see so many um, autistic people succeeding in design and invention and comedy and the arts and those kinds of things. But I think, you know, most um, autistic, most in, individuals and perhaps, you know, our listeners might even know and, and love someone who they're thinking, well, I don't notice these abilities in my little person. And so sometimes I think it's tuning into the little things. So, you know, I bet no matter um, how concerned or worried we are about our children, the fact that there's going to be something, some attribute that we need to notice. And it might be that our child is just very good at being very determined in the way in which they communicate or very focused on something. And, you know, I know one a very small little girl who's still pre-verbal and has significant learning differences. And she's incredibly, incredibly proficient in using a visual communication system called PEX. Uh, we've not time to um, explain that here, but it's by Pyramid and it's certainly something someone can look up on Google if they want a little bit more information or contact me directly. And her parents and te uh, nursery teacher could hardly produce uh, pictures quickly enough for her because she's so good at communicating using these pictures. And that great joy is really leading, you know, to her loving looking at picture books and being really interested in, in many of those sort of visual aspects of life. So I think the answer to abilities and skills is tuning in to what our children are good at is really important and making sure that we notice that yeah definitely and so nowadays I've noticed that there are a lot of videos circulating social media showing the early signs to look out for to identify autism in babies and toddlers yeah as we know with social media content not all of this information is accurate or even true so my question to you is can babies show signs of autism or is it too early to tell it's really interesting, isn't it? Because lots of these videos will be saying things like, you know, is the child pointing or is the child walking on tippy toes mm. or is the child um, commenting or sharing information? And of course, none of these in isolation actually add up to an autistic infant. So I think it's really important that we do kind of make sure that we're taking on board all those um, concerns, we're taking on board all that information. And certainly, um, I think, you know, often parents will reflect back on the differences of the development of that very early infant. So for example, I've worked with families where mums have said to me, oh, she was as good as gold. I could leave her in the pram and she'd lay under the tree in the garden for hours and hours. And then, you know, the same mum would say, and then once her 
sister came along and I realized this was not usual that I could leave a baby outside. You know, it was I chose when to disturb her, when to feed her, not the other way around. She wasn't demanding that sort of feed time or contact. She would just have led there quite happily. And then, you know, sort of kind of as a comparison another family would say oh you know my little boy I couldn't put him down I had to have him like in a baby carrier 24 hours a day and he needed that contact 24 hours a day and yet that same baby wouldn't breastfeed being held the mum had to lay him down and and like lean Mm -hmm. over him to feed him so I think what we're talking about here is not identifying the autism per se we're talking about identifying and noticing differences in development so yes autism is there from birth it isn't something that just suddenly evolves and suddenly shows itself but it is something that people often comment as noticing around the age of two and that's because those developmental milestones start to be a little bit more apparent the babbling, the communication, the willingness to participate, the desire to have contact, Mm -hmm. all of those things seem to evolve more around that toddler age. So it might be that that's the point that we notice those differences. And indeed, that's one of the reasons that um, we've introduced in this country as part of the two-year-old check system, the CHAT, the Childhood Autism um, scale so it's just a t- it's not really a test it's just a pointer um to just gain knowledge about that early um development because the spectrum differences can really help us to um understand how best to support our children um in the future as as we move on yeah so hopefully you know that i think that's the thing the earlier we can provide the access to diagnosis, the right support and the best opportunities, then the the better um, start our children have definitely got. Yeah. So there's you essentially saying there's no two, no two babies are the same. You can't, you yeah. know, there's no specific criteria or anything that... No not anything specific but I think it's I think it is fair to say though that there are noticeable differences and noticeable different characteristics that are developing that parents probably notice and it's those often that later on parents will say oh, I had a gut feeling I just had a yeah. I just knew that he or she wasn't quite developing the same as maybe the other babies at toddler group or at mums and tots So there are definitely early indicators in many children, but sometimes parents will say, you know, I did not know. And the diagnosis comes as a real shock. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So next question is, if I felt my child was showing signs, how do I go about getting assessment and roughly how long will it take? Well, it's like the million dollar question, isn't it? In the NICE guidelines, the... um, process is supposed to take less than three months but unfortunately I think because of um you know the way we are and where we're at which would be a whole other (laughs) um, podcast uh people can be waiting for more than three months and in fact in um, May 2023 there was some research done and it said that 86 percent of people 
are waiting much longer than that. Mm-hmm. And of course, then what happens then is um, people sometimes get pushed along the route of a, a private diagnosis, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it can be costly and it can be equally um, as time consuming. So if possible, I think, you know, if we can engage more and more with our MCHAT um, provision, uh, it was Dr. Diana Robbins that um, has sort of altered that so that now it's very um, appropriate for really picking up those early indications, that early screening for toddlers 18 months plus. And that's happening naturally via hopefully your GP and your health visitor. Mm-hmm. So that then, you know, if we are sort of picking up early, then when our children get to school, then hopefully immediately they'd be referred on to the autism pathway assessment if by any chance the diagnosis hasn't progressed um, when they do get to school. But it's so great if we could just nail this early intervention and early support. And I think, unfortunately, we've a long way to go. And I feel ashamed about that because that's something that I would say lifelong in my whole career, that has been the situation. Yeah. So from from your experience with people, let's say I'm a a mum with a three-year-old and I I approach the GP, what's the most typical process or response? What what would be like the first steps? I think the the most important thing is that when that mum approaches the GP, that she's done a little bit of background work on recording and um, commenting and having some story examples of why she's concerned. So Mm -hmm. some examples of the different way in which her child's communicating. It may be that he's taking her hand and dragging her to the fridge. It may Mm -hmm. be that, you know, she's trying to go out and she's having, you know, more than what you would expect protests about putting shoes and socks on. It may be that when you get to grandma's house, if grandma's got a different colored cup ready and not the cup that you normally use, that you get in an over expected um, reaction to that. So, you know, I, I, I could probably list thousands of differences that um, we might see those reactions. And for one children child, that'd be absolutely right. And for another, it wouldn't necessarily because, you know, as we've said, autism is not a science, but what it is, is it's a different way of developing. And sometimes if we can, I think, make um, notes about those differences and go armed with that and our child and our concerns. So looking at differences in communication, in social behavior, any repetitive behaviors particularly that we're Mm -hmm. seeing and any sensory responses. So maybe, you know, not wanting to wear certain clothes or being very um, tactile defensive, so very anti certain things in our mouths, or maybe even the other way, maybe mouthing everything, putting everything in our mouth still at three, Mm. you know, eating stones, eating soil, those sorts of behaviours that are out of the parameters of what we would expect to see in a child of that age. Right. And as you mentioned, obviously, people can be waiting, parents can be waiting months um, to get an assessment. Yeah. With this in mind, would you say that it's worth getting a diagnosis? I think it's um, always worth seeking. And I, I think 
the difficulty in this country is we think of diagnosis as a label, but actually, hopefully, what we should be thinking of it as and what we need to work towards is that it's a great way of layering our knowledge. It's a great way of layering information and it's a great way of accessing additional support. So because of all of that, then yes, it's often worth getting a diagnosis. And I have never met anyone who has got a diagnosis and wished that they hadn't or regret getting a diagnosis. Mm. I meet lots of people who question whether having a diagnosis would be of any value. And even, Mm. you know, I just worked recently with a 63-year-old gentleman who actually it's been retirement for him that has flagged up his autistic concerns. And he um, has decided he's had an assessment and he does reach the criteria for autism, but he doesn't want to officiate his diagnosis because he feels like he's kind of got through life without it. But of Mm -hmm. course, today's listeners, I think today's listeners are the people who can change the agenda you can change the arena because you're the ones who can push for that information push for the knowledge and you know push for the fact that a diagnosis does not mean a label and leave you it means a pathway to the appropriate support yeah definitely I think you hear that so often people who I'd say more people my age, sort of 27 to 30, that, you know, they've gone through life so sort of misunderstood and getting the diagnosis is like confirmation. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we're still on a catch up. And, you know, the listeners today who have got young children and certainly in my experience, I often had situations, you know, I could name many, many where I was running an early intervention program and as parents were becoming more knowledgeable about their children's autism, then they too recognised that actually they wanted to have an assessment and they wanted to know more. So I think you're absolutely right, Molly. I think we're in a real catch-up situation still. And hopefully, you know, as time moves on and, and knowledge and understanding moves on, then we will get there. And I used to work with a great psychologist actually called Caroline Smith. And um, she's the author of um, Plan A is for Autism and also has done a lot of work on social stories rather like um, Carol Gray. And she always used to say, you know, um, when parents were saying, oh, I don't know whether I should get a diagnosis. And she had a lovely phrase and she used to say, are the child's characteristics getting in the way of them learning and interacting and cooperating with their peers? And I think that's quite for that sort of, you know, primary age child where Mm. our concerns are kind of coming to light. That's quite a nice sort of thing to think about, isn't it? You know, are they getting in the way? And, and of course, you know, that kind of takes sometimes into the arena of, of masking and things, which sometimes that's where we get a little bit confused because sometimes mm. our children are good at hiding those, um, yeah. trying to fit in with their peers. Yeah. And so during our live events and webinars, we actually get quite a lot of these sorts of questions come up. Um, to do with masking and, and, and girls in particular. Um, with this in mind, how does autism present differently in both boys and girls? 
I think, um, you know, there's, there's this suggestion, as we say, that girls mask better. And I think there's a danger that that can fool people into believing that boys don't, you know. And mm. I know lots of little boys that um, work very hard to try and sort of fit in with their peers and, and um, understand what's going on in a world that actually they don't really understand what's going on. Mm. And I think what's happened is um, we've, boys often present with more obvious um, interests. So their focus interests might be around maybe washing machines or lining up cars very differently. So we, we tune into that very quickly. We notice that very quickly. Whereas for girls, it might be that they're more um, interested in sort of, you know, setting out a tea party or playing with ponies. And we don't initially kind of recognize any um, sort of difference in that. And I know, you know, Simon Baron Cohen's had sort of some mixed reception about his work, but, you know, he, because he kind of talked about this, this sort of testosterone um driven development but indeed what he's reminding us of is that actually autism develops in the brain in the very early early stages and so we need to just evolve our knowledge of that we need to evolve the fact that actually the way in which we identify and the way in which we notice what's going on in both genders it is important and actually what we need to do is I think not try and create yet another subgroup of um, neurodiversity or autism but to really really understand that the differences that we're looking for in both genders irrespective of the assigned gender at birth is the characteristics and the presentations, the communication, the interaction, the sensory processing. So I think, you know, tuning into our individuals, profiles and characteristics is really important. And trying to sort of, I, I think, you know, stay safe, stay away from these subgroups because it's the individual characteristics that are more important than whether you're a male or a female. Because if you're an autistic male or an autistic female, then socially and communication-wise and sensorily-wise and behaviour-wise, your behaviours, all of those things will be different to that of your peers. Yeah, I've, I've heard you mention sensory processing a few times there. Just for parents yeah. who don't know what that term means, what are, the, what are some of the sensory processing difficulties that children might uh, face? And that's a really good point to pick up on, Molly, because I think there's a real danger in um, all of these arenas that uh, we kind of slip into that sort of professional jargon almost. And it's confusing and it's scary and it really doesn't need to be. So I think, you know, sensory processing is a great one to think about because it was only actually within the last few years that sensory uh, processing has been included as part of the autistic diagnostic criteria in the in the manual DSM-5. So I think um, as far as social uh, sensory processing goes, what we're really just talking about is the differences in sensorial behavior. So the way in which we interact sensorily 
with our world. So, for example, not just um, differences in our taste, in our hearing, in our smells, in how we see things, but also differences in our relationship with where we are in the world. So we might have a child that does a lot of leaning or a lot of, you know, rubbing along the wall because that's part of their proprioception and their vestibular sensory system coming into play. So it's the way in which we use our senses to make sense of our world and to understand our world better. And the way in which we use our senses to help us to tolerate the world. And we all do that. We all use our senses to help us to tolerate the world. You know, we all fiddle with our hair sometimes, we all chew a pen, we all click sometimes. You know, we, we all seek out some sensory um, feedback. So I think, you know, it is important for our listeners to really kind of tune into the relationship that their children have with their sense, with their world in terms of their sensory system. Yeah, brilliant. And so from your experience working with the breadth of families that you have, what would you say, other than the sensory processing difficulties, are some of the most common challenges that parents face? with the, the, the children who have autism? I, I think, to be honest, the, the most common is um, the lack of understanding of people around, around mm. um, them. And I've just got a, a, a story that sort of sprung to mind and it was recently a, a little one actually and also having talked about sensory. So a little one was just going for um, some x-rays after a fall. And uh, she'd hurt her arm and she's four and a half, but she's got a blanket that she will not, um, you know, does not like to leave anywhere. And this blanket goes everywhere with her and nursery and school, you know, have been very tolerant of that. And so this, this blanket stays with her all the time, but she wasn't able to take this blanket into the um, x-ray department because of the fibers in it. And it really caused such trauma and such heartbreak. And I think, you know, sometimes just thinking, is there a way around this? And we actually did find a way around it because all we needed to do was some work at home on getting her to put her blanket in a little pillow slip or a drawstring bag. And then she was hanging that at home just for two minutes and then for five minutes. And then she was letting her mummy hold it. So we did a lot of kind of practice work after this, but this was after she'd been kind of fought almost and held down, you know, for an mm -hmm. x-ray in the hopes that next time she's set up for success, she's set up to leave that blanket with a mummy so that then she can go into the x-ray department and so I think understanding our children is is that's it that's the biggest most important thing and that's the biggest challenge that autistic people face is the lack of knowledge the lack of understanding and also the failing in our professional term of setting our children up to succeed equipping them with the tools and the knowledge to be able to manage their autism yeah and do you have any suggestions I know we've actually got a webinar coming upon this but um suggestions for helping your family members or people who are you know people who are quite close to the child any strategies to help them understand or help them understand what you know why they might be behaving a certain way yeah 
I think that's one of the biggest challenges for autistic people as well. It's not just uh, people out there, but often, you know, it can be family members, it can be siblings, it can be grandparents that kind of think that it's just the way that the child is being parented. So I think having um, knowledge at your fingertips, and certainly one of the sessions I always do with parents when I do an initial home visit, is working through the elements of those cogs, working through the scientific knowledge that we have about how the brain develops differently for autistic people. And I think having that information, having that knowledge can really help our families to have a better understanding. So ensuring that they understand that our children will have differences in the way in which they communicate, that they deal with their social world and that they interpret what's going on around them and will react and respond differently to that. And that that is a normal, you know, I hate that word normal, but that is an expected part of that autism profile. You know, we wouldn't be having these conversations if everybody was, you know, um, going along the very same uh, profile. Yeah. And can you tell us any myths or mis misrepresentations that are commonly associated with autism? Yeah, I think I think there's so many, isn't there? And mm. I think eye contact is one that would spring immediately to mind. I still have families that say, oh, I didn't think she could be autistic because, you know, she looks at us and <laughs> she looks at us intently. And um, I think being... Um, like a savant skill that being really, really good, exceptionally good at something like playing the piano or art and, and drawing those kinds of skills um, often get flagged up, don't they, as a, mm. a kind of, well, you know, uh, he'll be great at maths because he's autistic. And I think um, and a lack of affection is another one that um, sometimes families will say to me, oh, you know, we didn't think there was anything because he's very affectionate. Mm. So again, I think we've got to go back to that, you know, where is this profile, this spiky profile that often gets talked about within the um, arena of autism? And I think, you know, understanding that actually it's, as regards the savon skill, that ability, it's only 4%. It's not that much different to the general population, but we've got this um, spiky profile. And I think we also make a lot of assumptions as human beings. We try and make sense of our world by making assumptions about things we already know or we think we already know. And I think there's a really nice example very recently from Paul Isaacs, um, an autistic gentleman who just talked about his lived experience and the fact that he sees the world in fragments. And so a whole picture. So when we're using um, what would be typically professionally thought of as a good way to work, so, you know, a visual schedule or a visual timetable to support our autistic children, he's talking about the fact that actually for him, that's mightily confusing because he sees that in little tiny pieces and he doesn't see in the whole. And in order to make sense of his world, what he has to do is add in an additional element. So he says that he has to add in and he does this very naturally. He's not thinking, oh, now what can I just add in to help this make sense? It's just always been part of him. So he has to touch a face or smell someone 
to make that recognition. Seeing it is not enough. And that really challenges lots of um, professionals' approaches to supporting people with autism because lots of professionals' assumptions, you know, that kind of myth would be that um, they're, all autistic people are very strong visually. And so, you know, these are kind of challenges that we need to work with, that we need to take on board. And I think it challenges our professional myth that we start off working with autistic children by using objects and doing object reference and then going on to pictures and then maybe going on to words or an iPad and missing that, um, you know, important element of the fact that actually it's communication that is the primary key here and understanding. And that's what we've got to um, really concentrate on. Yeah. And you mentioned then, so a couple of strategies for, for home, um, you mentioned object referencing and visual calendars. Yeah. Is there anything else that you can suggest for parents and carers to implement at home? I think really tuning in to the way that your child, exactly as Paul Isaacs is reminding us, interprets their world and using the skills that they are already demonstrating. They will already be using some means of communication, which may be screaming and, and dragging you and showing you and then banging on the fridge and pointing. So getting some photographs of what's in the fridge or I've even had families who have cut out things like the front of the milk carton or peeled the label off and put that on the fridge door or even, um, you know, Velcroed a spoon onto the fridge door or the yogurt carton, an empty yogurt carton onto the fridge door so that we're really starting off to look, okay, so our child is taking us to the fridge we're having to go through this whole drama of trying to work out what the child really wants. But is there a way that we can connect? Because that child knows the minute that door opens what it is they want. The missing gap, the bridge we need to put in is the communication. So if we can do that in a way that they, at a level they are understanding, then that is the best start for our listeners who are really just starting on that journey of early understanding. So really tuning in to those early pointers. Yeah. And that brings us last, nicely onto our last question. Um, finally, I think it's important for children to have role models to look up to. Can you end our podcast with some examples of famous people with autism who have gone on to achieve big things? Yeah, I think I, I think it is always nice, isn't it, to have that kind of aspiration, but at the same time recognizing that of course, you know, the most important um strength, the most important hero really is the, the child themselves and the family around them and uh you know, noticing um that that their strengths and their abilities as we said earlier. But I think, you know, there's some lovely little books out there that some people find really helpful so there's different like me by Jennifer Elder and she offers some nice examples as scientists and researchers um but I also think using relative interests of of those slightly um older children who are able to we feel benefit from knowing someone famous who's autistic and I was doing some work with a little girl very recently 
who's nine and she wants to be a famous dancer and a famous singer. So we discovered that Billie Eilish um, is on the uh, neurodiverse spectrum and also Maddie Ziegler, a a famous dancer. So, you know, working with those relevant connections is really great. And I'd just like to share with you a a website, actually, which is www.getinflow.io. And it's by it's posted by a lady called Maddie Ziegler, and she has posted 71 famous autistic celebrities. So that's a really nice one to sort of have a look through um, with your child and just, you know, reflect on those uh, abilities that people have tuned into their skills. But remember that the best reflection of a unique hero is of you and your child, no matter where you are on your journey. And I think it's so important, you know, to encourage our listeners to sort of, you know, if they do listen to this podcast, if they do nothing more than when they go home, look in the mirror, sit with your child on your knee and take a whiteboard marker and write around that mirror all of the skills, all of the strengths that you can see in your child. And, you know, if they're capable, give them a marker to add their own as well, because they are the real heroes. Oh, and that's a lovely way to end our podcast today. And so that just about brings us to the end of our episode. I'd like to say a massive thank you to you, Anne-Marie, for your time today, and also to our wonderful listeners for joining. If you've listened to this podcast and have any questions that we didn't answer, please join us for our next live Q&A taking place on Instagram, where there will be opportunities to have your questions answered by expert speakers. All you have to do is follow us by typing in at witherslackgrp on Instagram. So thanks again for joining us and we hope you can join us for another episode of Sensational soon. Bye for now. Thanks very much. Bye everybody.